Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We're in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, along with Matthew chapter 7 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there is one in the seat back pocket there in front of you. Um, Before we begin our study, and I pray, I want to say there is good news and there is bad news. The good news is, ladies, you're going to have to wait till after Christmas until we talk to you. So, Merry Christmas. Gentlemen, the bad news is for you. You have to wait until after Christmas. Uh, so you, so listen, I know some of you came prepared, but I also know there's some ladies that didn't come this week because, gotcha. So if you're listening online, you can still come to the 1230 because you're safe. All right? Titus 1, Matthew 7, 2 Timothy 3. Here's the deal. I didn't want to just skip over an area of Scripture and not spend as much time as I feel need be because of the topic that you will see is addressed. And so, uh, ladies, you have about three weeks to emotionally, spiritually, and mentally prepare for Titus chapter 2. Let all the ladies say, Amen. Amen. All right. Some of the ladies are like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to be convicted all Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. Every bit of it. And I pray now that as we dig deep into Titus 1, it's something that's common with every believer. Every believer has a problem situation or a problem person in the church. So I'm just humbly asking that as you instruct us, that we would respond in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason, speaking to Titus, Paul says, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. We went through that last week. Now, verse 10, we realize he was called to set in order something. Now, in verse 10, we begin to see what he was called to set in order. For there are many insubordinate. Now, remember, this is in the church. Both idle talkers and deceivers. Deceivers come to church. Especially those of the circumcision. Whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. They're in it for the money. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is the poet Epimenides. He said this about the Cretans. If you were going to be called a Cretan, if you would say, wow, you lie like a Cretan. That's what you would say. Much like you would say, you're hardworking like an American or you're loud like an American. We can say that. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess, profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being, listen to this, abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I got a question for you. Have you ever had to deal with a difficult person in the church? Go ahead. I want to see your hands. Have you ever had to deal with a difficult person? Okay. Okay. This side has a lot of problems with people. But you guys, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever had to deal with a difficult person? Ever? Difficult person. Difficult person in the church. Okay. Got two or three. God bless you. Now, as we go through this study, you should not be thinking of your spouse. 
I mean, I'm talking about someone who is obstinate, stubborn. They have to be right. They call themselves a Christian. Maybe it's your roommate, your workmate. Could even be your teenager, because trust me, your teenager is thinking it's you. (laughs) And it takes a lot of character to deal with difficult people. So Paul, he was really wise to tell Titus that he needed to find strong, spiritual, mature male leadership to deal with the difficult problem and difficult people in the church. Men that had character and integrity. We went through it last week. Men who had fortitude to handle the problems in the church. Men who knew the word of God. And they were willing to communicate the word of God in a problem situation. When someone would come at them, they could say, The Bible says, John chapter 4 says, Titus chapter 1 says, they weren't giving their experience or their opinion or even their own story. They're just communicating the word of God. Titus? Titus had some real difficult people to deal with. They were known as the circumcision. Pastor Chet, are you going to talk about the circumcision at church? I brought a friend. That's what the Bible says they were called. They were called the circumcision. Imagine if your church was called the circumcision church. I mean, it's a little awkward, right? That's what they were called. They weren't called Baptists. They weren't called Methodists. They were called the circumcision. That's what they were. Because this was a group that believed that you had to be saved by believing in Jesus and be circumcised and follow Jewish law. They were the Jesus and. You know what Paul called them? Paul called them the mutilators. In Philippians chapter 3, that's what he called them. He called them, imagine if that was the name of your football team, the mutilators. He called them the mutilators. Let me tell you why. Because that's what the Romans called the Jews. The Romans called the Jews the mutilators. Let me tell you why. It's first century world. It's the Greco-Roman culture. They worshipped the body. In fact, in their Olympics, they did all of their competition in the nude because they worshipped the human body. So for you to cut the human body, oh, you were a mutilator. Paul takes the Roman thought and he calls these people the mutilators. They wanted people in the church to follow the rules and the traditions of the Jews. Paul called these rules and traditions Jewish fables. He called them the commandments of men. They were mixing the truth of Christianity with the traditions of Judaism, trying to make a new religion. That's why Paul says, to the pure all things are pure. You see, this word pure means it's not an alloy. It's not a mixture of metals. It's absolutely pure. Because church, let me tell you something. You cannot mix our faith with culture, with traditions, or even your own feelings. You can't mix. It has to be pure. And what he's saying to the pure, all things are pure. When you're a person of the word of God, you're not going to mix other things into your faith. So Paul, he takes the time to describe how difficult these people were that were in the church. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says they're insubordinate. They're rebellious. They won't do anything you tell them to do. They talk about nothing, even though they sound so spiritual, it's only to deceive you. You ever talk to someone who's in the New Age movement? I feel an aura in this beautiful blue sky. It's like a wisping wind. Oh, it just touched my crystal. I felt it. Oh, yes, it's something happening. Something. And they sound so spiritual, but it means nothing. It means absolutely, it's like, Dude, what are you saying? Like, it sounds all religious, but it makes no sense. And the Bible says they were deceiving people just to get their money. Verse 15, he says their minds and their conscience are defiled. In other words, they're rotten from the inside out. Within them exists a spiritual cancer that's destroying their whole faith. 
Verse 16, he says, they're hypocrites. They're abominable. What a word. They're disobedient. That word abominable? Oh, I'll never forget. I invited a friend over to my house many, many years ago. And he was telling us about this great movie that he saw. I think it was called Evan Almighty. Now, if you've seen it, don't confess to it because my mom is here, okay? (laughs) So he is going on and on and on about Evan Almighty. And I could see my mom getting a little worked up. Like, okay, what's going on here, you know? And this guy, I'd never seen the movie, this guy was given some God privileges and he used them to do ungodly things. And so he's going on and on as a Christian about how great this movie was and God's like this and God's like this. And I can see my mom like tapping her foot. And I'm like, dude, back down. I'm telling you, beep, beep, beep. Like, let's go on to a different subject. In the middle of him speaking, my mom stands up and goes, that's an abomination. And she walks out of the room. And I looked at the dude and I'm like, I told you. (laughs) I tried to back your way down. Let me tell you something, because to the pure, all things are pure. So to make something that's ungodly, godly, something should happen in our spirit. No wonder the leaders that Paul had told Titus to pick had to be spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically strong. Because they're going up against some people that are rebellious and insubordinate. It's going to take some spiritual strength to sharply rebuke them and shut their mouths. Paul even says, don't let them talk. Give no heed to them. Silence them. Cut off their speech. He's basically telling them, you're going to need someone like a moderator at a presidential debate. I mean, they were all liars, evil beasts. And lazy gluttons. I'm talking about the Cretans, not the presidential candidates. I didn't say it. Could you stop for a minute and think of how difficult it was to be the moderator, to be the facilitator of this kind of conversation in Crete? Where they're known to be liars, where they're known to be brutal, evil beasts, where they're known to be lazy gluttons. And Paul said to Timothy, I left you there. I left you in that problem place with those problem people for you to set things in order. Because I know sometimes when we're going through our problem situation with our problem person in the church, We want to get out of there. But there's a hope for every situation with the gospel. Everyone can change, even the people of Crete. And so Paul says, I believe that, and I'm leaving you there. So maybe there's another way to look at our problem that God has put us in it so that we can set things in order. Maybe the gospel needs to be applied to your problem situation. You see... This false doctrine was wreaking havoc in the church. The Bible says they were turning whole families away from the truth. Now, you need to understand that when someone would come into town, churches met in homes. So they would go and they would give their false doctrine and everyone would go, well, I guess that's kind of true. And all of a sudden, they would turn away from the truth of the gospel. Do you know this is happening in the church today? False doctrine is pulling people away from the truth. Because false doctrine appeals to three main things in our lives. It's the three tricks of the devil. It's found in 1 John chapter 2. Take a look. Do not love the world or the things in the world. None of us are guilty of that, I know. Because on Thanksgiving Day, you all told Jesus, and I told Jesus how thankful I was for all the things that he got me, and then on Black Friday, I bought even more. (laughs) And if Black Friday wasn't enough for me to get all that I wanted because I was so thankful for what I had before, then I've got hope for Cyber Monday. (laughs) Listen, you know what? There's a little bit of love for the world in all of us. But he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
If your passion is for Black Friday and Cyber Monday more than it is for God and what His call for us in our lives, that's a problem. For all that's in the world, and here it is, the tricks of the enemy, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He says, why would you pour all of your effort into the things that are temporal instead of putting every bit of your passion and love for the things that are eternal? But did you see him? Three things that the enemy uses in false doctrine to to just tickle us to come in that direction. The first was the lust of the flesh. That's anything that makes my flesh happy. It actually has a title. It's a false doctrine. It's known as progressive Christianity. Didn't know if you knew this existed, but I'm warning you now. It's called progressive Christianity. 2 Timothy chapter 4 calls it something else. 2,000 years ago, listen to what the Holy Spirit told us. For the time will come, hello, we're here. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, a.k.a. progressive Christianity, because they have itching ears, a.k.a. progressive Christianity, they will heap up for themselves teachers, false teachers, charlatans, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to things that aren't true, to fables. Let me tell you what progressive Christianity is. It's a rewriting of essential and important elements of biblical feet teachings to fit personal lifestyles. Let me tell you what it is. It's a religious sentiment involved with social action, even political concerns. But all of those things soon eclipse personal holiness and the need for salvation from sin. So I went on one of their websites. Very proud to be this website to be a progressive Christian. Listen to their statement of faith, their doctrine. The power of the Christian faith to transform lives does not require it to be exclusively true. Exclusivity is born out of fear. The fear that there is one train to God and if you aren't on the right train, you'll go to hell. We believe there are many trains and God welcomes us all. Don't go to this church. (laughs) Listen to this. Christianity is the truth for us, but it's not the only truth. The principle stands from the reality we live in the 21st century. This is their statement of faith. Listen. We share our lives with people that are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, and Buddhist. We experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. To deny That is to deny that God can only draw people with one way. That simply isn't true. Don't go to this church. I'm going to say that out loud. I'm going to say it very plainly. It's a lust of the flesh. Whatever we want, whatever persuasion we want, that's what I want to go for. Lust of the eyes. This is known as the faith movement. I can name it and claim it in Jesus' name. As long as I believe it, I can have it. I want that car in Jesus' name. I want that house in Jesus' name. I don't want to pay those taxes, but I want that house. Lord, I I want that, and I want that person, and I want this thing, and I want that job. And as long as I believe it, I can have it in Jesus' name. Whatever I want, I can have in Jesus' name. What if Jesus don't want you to have it? What if he doesn't want you to have it? Because let me tell you what the faith movement does. The faith movement appeals to the greed in all of us, the lust of the eyes. I see it, I want it. When spiritual leaders are not to be greedy for money, we started that last week. We're to be generous. We need to realize we're only stewards of what God has given us and we're conduits of his resources to others. In other words, it's not what I can get for myself It's what I can give because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Thirdly, the pride of life. 
Do you know what I call this theology? Me-ology. <laughs> you see it in every Christian bookstore. How I can be the best me I can be. It has nothing to do with glorifying God, being the best you you can be. Because we are called to die to ourselves and to lose our life. You see, meology is about finding your greatest potential as a human being with your own personal convictions and your own personal persuasions. But Jesus calls us to pick up our cross daily and to die to ourselves. False doctrine. Now, some of you are listening. <laughs> I knew I was right. <laughs> now, before you think I just gave you permission to go online and start rebuking everyone, or even start a blog, maybe a Christian gossiping tabloid, or even send an email to the spiritual leader that you disagree with, that's not what I'm saying. I'm pointing out false theology. But there's a couple things that you need to do. See, the first thing that you have to do is evaluate yourself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see what Jesus has to say. Let's see what the Holy Spirit communicates to us before we start going out and challenging everybody and setting things in order so that everyone can believe what we believe. No, no, no. Take a look, Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For what ju- with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. So if you're mean and angry and just an evil kind of rebuker person, guess what? I just let Jesus tell you, not me. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your own eye, and look, the plank is in your own eye. Listen, stop there for just a minute. you got a 10-foot plank in your eyeball. You can't even get close to anybody, because every time you do, you're hitting them in the head. You've got to get rid of this thing first. And Jesus says, hypocrite. Ouch. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly, you'll see how God sees it, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We talked about this last week, didn't we? The first place to start is evaluate yourself. And when we look at the characteristics of what a godly man was, a I. God's ideal man. He was a family man. He was a disciplined man. He was a godly man. He was a spiritual man. He was not a mean person. He was hospitable. And when we look at those things, then we'll be able to take the plank out of our way, see clearly. In other words, see it the way that God sees it. And we repent. And we receive the mercy and grace of God in our own lives. And once you receive grace and mercy, you're able then to go to the person and give them the same grace and mercy that you received. Can I remind you of the parable of the unmerciful servant? Forgiven five million bucks by the king. He leaves the king and he walks outside and he sees a guy that owes him a penny. He's beating him up. Give me my penny. Throw your family in jail. Give me my penny. The king hears about it, grabs the guy that he forgave the five million debt and put him in prison. And Jesus is trying to get across a point. Why wouldn't you be as merciful as Jesus Christ has been merciful on you? But the second thing to remember is to consider is that the, there's a way that we're supposed to go to people. Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says that if anyone has sinned against us or offended us, we're to go to them. And if someone comes to me and says to me, hey, Pastor Chet, I want to tell you, uh, uh, that person did this to me. Do you know what I say to them? Have you gone to them? Because that's the way of the gospel. I'm not going to listen to your gossip. I'm not going to listen to you badmouth them. I'm asking you a question. Have you gone to them to solve the problem? You see, what we're about to learn is that we have a responsibility to set things in order. 
But there's a way that we do it when we go to the person. Now, some of you are lathering, like, I can't wait to go home and tell my family members they're wrong. (laughs) I love to rebuke. I wake up in the morning going, I can rebuke. (laughs) But some of you right now are absolutely mortified. You can't believe that anyone would ever think to rebuke anyone privately or publicly. You're like a, you're that person that's like, please don't ask me to do this. I love my church. I love my people. Kumbaya, my Lord. He's wonderful. What? I mean, come on, Chet. If that's what they believe and it's something that they believe, it's good for them. That's okay. I don't believe it. It's going to be fine. Just, just let them be there. Don't rebuke them. Don't stop them. That position is just as dangerous as rebuking them with a harsh heart. Let me tell you why. Can you imagine if the circumcision succeeded in the first century church? And here in L.A., we actually had a church called the First Church of the Circumcised. Just imagine. If you got saved at Calvary, we said to you, hey, God bless you. Welcome to the church. There's a little room right there with the Flintstone. We'll see you in a few. (laughs) Uncomfortable, right? Imagine if the false doctrine of the circumcision would have succeeded. You see, if you're one of those people, it's like, ah, it's good for them, it's not good for me. Kumbaya. It basically says that we're willing to let a thief break into our house and choose to sleep rather than protect our kids. it's, It's like a doctor knowing someone has cancer but doesn't want to hurt their feelings, so they go in the room, shake their hand, and let them walk away without giving them what is going on inside their body. Think about it for just a moment. Because this is actually the context of what Paul is trying to get across to Titus. Go back with me to Titus chapter 1. Take a look at verse 13. This testimony, Titus 1.13, is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That word sound is our word healthy. And what Titus is, Paul is telling Titus is cancer has been detected in the church. And they need to become healthy. Because false doctrine is like an aggressive cancer. Its goal is to destroy the church. And Paul wants Titus to be the doctor that makes the prognosis and provides the procedure and the prescription to better health. So he says, you've got to deal with this sharply. In other words, you've got to deal with it now in order to restore them to good health. In fact, Timothy's dealing with the same thing. Just a page before Titus. And Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with this same problem. But Paul in Timothy gives him the spiritual surgery necessary to deal with this kind of problem and problem people in the church. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. Just a page to the left. Page to the left. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would you look with me at verse 16? 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, let me tell you what that means. Everything that we read is only God's recorded word. It's what God has to say about life. Everything we read. And is profitable. It has value. It is valuable for doctrine. In other words... God is going to teach us how he wants us to live. It has value for reproof. God wants us to convict us with his word when we're not living the right way. Johnny, don't do that. Johnny, you should do that. The word of God will 
correct us. In other words, God wants to correct our crooked behavior. But not only that, the Word of God is for instruction in righteousness. He wants to train us in the weak areas of our life. Take a look why. That the man of God, the person of God, may be healthy, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, chapter 4. Now take a look, Christian. I charge you, says the Holy Spirit. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, look at verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He doesn't give any of us an excuse to live in our kumbaya bubble. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Take a look. With all long suffering and teaching. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul describes for us the proper way on how to challenge a person to go from unhealthy in the church to healthy. I want you to write these down. Number one, the Word of God is the authority on spiritual health. The Word of God is the authority on spiritual health. The Holy Spirit says to us, preach the Word. He doesn't say preach your opinion. It doesn't say give your experience. It doesn't even say tell your story or the way you feel about it. Preach the Word. That's why it's so important for us to be people of the word so that when problems come, we don't give our opinion. We give Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, John chapter 8. When someone comes to me and says, they slapped me in the cheek and I'm going to get them. I may feel bad about it. I may even be hurt for the person. But I'm so glad I've got the authority of the Word of God to boldly say to them, turn the other cheek. Whenever I'm sitting with a couple and I'm doing a marriage counseling, I may feel for the wife. I may even think the husband's wrong. I may feel for the husband and think the wife is wrong, depending on the situation. And I may get a little riled in of myself going, wait a second, got to deal with this problem, but the way I feel about it. And in that moment, I'm thankful that I've got the word of God that I can with authority say, I don't care what she's done. Love her as Christ loves the church. Can you choose to respect your husband like the Bible says to respect your husband? Even if they don't obey, you win them over with your good moral chase conduct. It may not be the way I feel in the moment, but I've got the spiritual of the authority of the word of God to speak that truth into their life. Because I know we've heard some things that aren't so true. Do you remember? God helps those who help themselves. You heard that before? Sounds so spiritual, right? God helps those who help themselves. No, that is so false. He had to send his son, Jesus Christ, because there was nothing we could do to get to heaven. He helps those who are helpless and can do nothing for themselves. Some of you are like, I like that saying. I didn't know it was unbiblical. Do you remember what your parents used to tell you? cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not even a verse in the Bible. Just want to throw it out there. But here's the winner one of the 21st century. Just follow your heart. Let me tell you about my heart. It is deceitfully wicked. Just follow your heart. Just go with your feelings. How do you feel about it? What do you think the word is saying to you? Who cares what you think the Word is saying to you? You've got to figure out what is the Word saying, not how you feel about what the Word is saying. Let the church say amen. Follow your heart. You see, the Word of God will make us complete. And the Word of God is the authority on spiritual health. So if you can go to the person with the Word then you're on a sure foundation. Secondly, 
The word of God is to be ministered with all long suffering. Can I tell you something about problem people and problem situations? Sometimes they need time to change. Change don't happen overnight. Just look at yourself. Do you know how long God's been dealing with you? Let the church say, He's been dealing with you for a lifetime. He's probably got another 50 years before you are perfected. Think of the long-suffering heart of God. And long-suffering is an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit operating in your life. In other words, if you're going to go to someone with a problem, you've got to go with all long-suffering. It reveals that you love them enough to see them change. You're willing to walk the journey with them until change happens in your life. In their life. Because dealing with difficult people is an expression of the unconditional love of God. That's why when we go to them, we speak the truth in love. Because that's just an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit also operating in your life. But sometimes I know problem people and problem situations can test our last nerve. You ever been there? Have you ever been there? I notice this side is still more humble. (laughs) Have you ever been there? I have nine kids. I lived there for 25 years. One time we had a a work day at the house on Saturday. One of my kids took, I gave them a bucket of water to mop the floor. So you know what they did? They took the bucket and threw it all over the tile floor. Yes? Yes? My daughter, I walked into her room and she had cleaned her room and she thought her room was so beautiful that she took Crayola crayons and she decided to put wallpaper all on the walls to make it even more beautiful. Then I walked outside and my teenage sons, they literally had implements in their hand to beat each other with because they couldn't agree on where they wanted to clean first. And I walked outside and by the bucket, then the crayon, and now I'm walking into this. I come walking like this, and one of my sons looks at me and goes, we should pray. (laughs) Dad, I think you need to ask for the Spirit right now. And he was so right. Now, I know he was saving his little backside, but he was so right. I needed in that moment to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God was asking me to do. And once I have the Spirit of God, the Bible says we are directed in 2 Timothy 4.2, we're directed to convince. Let me express what this means. You've been humble enough to evaluate yourself first. You love them enough to go to them so that they can become healthy because it's unhealth. Now the word's directing that we're to convince them. We're to expose them to the truth. Let me show you this word in three different verses. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to light, lest his deeds should be convinced or exposed. Same word. And when he's come, he will convict. He'll expose He'll convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will expose us to truth. Ephesians 5.11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, convince them. Rather, expose them. There's that word. You're exposing them to the truth of the word of God. Let me show you how this operates in your life. The Spirit wants to use you to set things in order. He's put you in this problem situation with this problem person to expose that situation to the word of God so you can convince them about the truth of Scripture. Fourthly, we're directed to rebuke. Now, some of you with that word are lathering because you just love to tell people you're wrong. You are right. In fact, there's two rules in my life. Number one, I'm always right. Number two, if I'm ever wrong, refer back to rule number one. Like, you just love rebuke. Some of you, when you hear that word, uh uh-oh. Kumbaya, my Lord, I love wonderful. And you just ignore me completely. Let me say the word again, rebuke. Because both extremes 
are not what this word entails. It's actually used 30 times in the New Testament, this word. Jesus rebuked the wind and peace came. Jesus rebuked the demons and they came out. You see, this word rebuke, it's a demand by God's authority for something to cease and desist. You see, after you've exposed the person to sin, you've let them know, you've exposed them to the truth that what they're doing is sinful, you have to direct people, stop sinning. And he says to them, do it sharply. Rebuke them sharply. In other words, don't beat around the bush. Be clear and concise. Identify the sin and let them know they need to stop. Oh, Pastor Chet, we don't do that in our culture. We want everyone to know that they're accepted. We don't want anyone to know that what they're doing is wrong. I mean, their truth is their truth. Can I tell you the Bible has no problem with clarity? Did you hear what Paul said about the Cretans? They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. If we were to say that in our 21st century world, we actually might set people free. Because they're not telling a story. They're lying. And we've come up with all of these friendly ways to communicate with the Bible has no problem with clarity. Well, I really love my girlfriend, so we just tr- decided to try each other out because we just love each other. So you're fornicating. That word's offensive. We're not fornicating. We love each other. But you're not married nor committed to each other, so you're actually... Some of you are like, could you please stop saying that word? <laughs> like, I don't know if I like that word at all. See, the Bible has no problem with clarity. Our culture does. The Bible has no problem to point things out. Now, here's the reason, because people have done it wrongly. And so I want to point out something of why this word rebuke has to operate with another word. Take a look. It's Luke 17, verse 3. Jesus is speaking about a topic. Take heed to yourselves. Pay attention to this. If your brother sins against you, there's the word, rebuke him. Some of you started lathering and some of you kumbaya, I know. And if he repents, there's the word. Say it with me. Forgive him. The context of the rebuke is always with forgiveness. It's only identifying the sin so that mercy, grace, and love can be communicated. The message of the gospel is restoration. The message of the gospel is reconciliation. The message of the gospel is forgiveness. In essence, a rebuke is a call to repentance. Remember, it's the kindness of God that led every single one of us to repentance. And so if we're going to use this word to communicate to someone that they're wrong, then we've got to go with the context of giving forgiveness and being forgiven. Finally, number five. When we go to the person, we're directed to exhort them. Now, Paul uses this word a lot in the context of the Christian family. And this word, it's a word it means to encourage, comfort, or build up. So when you rebuke someone, then you exhort them. You actually then begin to build them up. They may not feel good after they've been told that something's wrong in their life and they're unhealthy and they've got a cancer. But you've got the treatment of the word of God and the way of God to bring them to a different place. Take a look what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. When we go to someone, we need to go to them in the context of we're in the family. Now, Paul, he had a problem. There was a guy in 1 Corinthians that was committing sexual immorality. And so the church decided to rebuke him. They gave it to him. They told him he was wrong. But the problem was they didn't do it the way of God. So take a look now, if you would. Paul has to write a second letter. And he says this. 
This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient. Like, you guys, relax. So that on the contrary, let me give you a different way, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Must perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. See, the sin was exposed, but the church was giving it to him. That's not the way of God. You need to be built up in faith and hope and love. Christian correction should always be and lead to restoration and reconciliation. That's the message of the gospel. And God has placed you in your problem situation with your problem person. So not only can you share the gospel, but you live the gospel in front of them. With difficult people. In difficult situations that God has put us in to set it in order. Can I tell you one of the most difficult problems to deal with is people's sin? And the way we go about it. You see, how many of us pass sinners in our workplace, in our neighborhoods every single day? Kumbaya. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Now, they're going to hell. And how many of us just pass by? Or, in the church, you used to sit on this side, but she hurt me. Now I sit on this side. I don't want to deal with it. I mean, she could do whatever she wants to do. I don't want to have to deal with it. But the Bible calls us to set things in order, to live the gospel. And one of the most difficult things to deal with is people's sin. I get it. But your responsibility as the church is not just to walk by it, but to deal with it God's way. Now, it's not up to you whether they accept it or reject it. Because remember, Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. But there was only one at the cross that believed. Jesus looked at him and he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Your responsibility is to be the person to go deal with it. With the forgiveness and the love and the mercy that Jesus has had for you. Your responsibility is not how they respond. That's on them and their walk with God. Now I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you are dealing with a difficult person or you're in a difficult situation? I want to pray for you right now. Would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I'm going to humble myself. I'm in the middle of a difficult situation and a difficult person. And so, Lord, I see every hand that's up. You see every hand that's up. And I believe that you want to do a supernatural work, a gospel work, that you've placed them in this problem to set things in order for your glory. And so with every hand raised, I ask in Jesus' name, would you intervene? And with this message, would they do it your way, the gospel way? In Jesus' name I pray. I told you that one of the most difficult things to deal with is people's sin. And some of you are here and you've not dealt with the sin issue in your life. You see, Jesus came and he said, there's no way for you to get to heaven. I'm the way. He wasn't afraid to deal with the cancer, the spiritual cancer that's within every single one of us. He wasn't afraid to be the doctor that says, you are terminal. You're going to hell. He wasn't afraid to say it. He walked into the doctor's room and he said, listen, you've got a spiritual cancer. It's called sin. But I want to let you know, I have a treatment that can cure you. All you have to do is believe in me. Jesus says, I offer you an abundant life. And I also offer you an eternal life. 
And I told you earlier, one of the most difficult things is to deal with people's sin because they accept it or reject it. If you're sitting here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, why not be the one that accepts him? You've tried everything else. Why not taste and see that the Lord is good? It's Christmas cookie season, right? Everyone's doing Christmas cookies. I'm going to gain like 50 pounds. Everyone's doing Christmas cookies. And I'll taste every single one of them. But then there'll be the one, the Italian wedding cookies. You know, the round balls covered in the powder. Oh, when I taste it, I can see it's good. And if it's in your heart, No, listen. I know what it's like to try everything and to come up empty. And the Lord says, why don't you give me a try? You've tried everything else and you're still at where you're at. Why not see what I offer you? And every Christian is not moving because they're praying for you right now. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want to know that you're saved... If you want to know that you're going to heaven, Jesus says, I'm the only way. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in this song and take a step of faith in front of all these people. And there was one person in the 830 service who stood up here and said, I want Jesus. And when I said we did church today just for you to get saved, the whole 830 just erupted in applause. So if there's one that comes forward, this service is worth it and this time. So if you want to know today that you're going to heaven, then take a step of faith when Gannon begins to sing, get up out of your seat and say to everyone in this room, I've decided to follow Jesus. We're going to applaud. And this is going to give you the strength to go out into your world and walk with Jesus. If that's you and you feel your heart pounding out of your chest, you get up out of your seat. I'm going to meet you here and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.